Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to kick off this morning. We've got some good stuff today. And so let's start with a quick prayer, and we'll launch in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your presence upon us this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Calm our hearts and minds that we may hear the word you have left for us to hear and that it inspire us to continue to do your work in the world you love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a quick note before we get rolling. Last Sunday, we continued a series, both preaching and teaching, on the book of Acts on Sunday morning. And so if you have not plugged in, although we had a lot of people here on Sunday, if you have not plugged into that, I invite you to do so. It's going to be seven weeks of both preaching in all the services and teaching at the 10 o'clock hour here in the chapel. And it's going to be on the same passages of Acts. And if you haven't heard yet, the reason we're doing this is because our presiding bishop, you know, in America, we don't have an archbishop. We have a presiding bishop, same difference. Michael Curry is our presiding bishop, and he asked us to read the book of Acts in the season of Easter. And so although we could have done it differently, what we decided to do is take three or four chapters every week, and the preacher will preach from some portion of that section, and then the teacher will teach from all of those chapters with the hope that, you know, sermons and study should be different and that they give us different perspectives on the same idea. And so the experience is a bit richer if we're hearing something from a pulpit and something from a lectern. And that's what we hope for you all in the season of Easter. So if you can't make it one Sunday, both are recorded. Both will be on the website so you can see both sermons and teachings. And here at St. Michael, I think it's kind of remarkable. We have, at minimum, four sermons preached every weekend, sometimes more than that. And at least three of those are always recorded. And especially in a series like this, I don't know that we've done this yet since I've been here, where all of the preachers are preaching on the same passages. So you could theoretically hear three, different, three or four different sermons every weekend and a teaching. And if you're not here, three of those sermons are recorded. So you could compare the way the different preachers approach the text and then score them based on whether you like them. <laughs> and then let us know who wins. All right, so today we're going to be looking at chapter 21. Chapter 21, just like chapter 20, is still in between what we would consider Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday, right? Jesus is still in Jerusalem after having done the big procession and teaching in and around the temple. And these teachings are... In essence, the last public moments of Jesus's life and ministry. And so he wants to summarize, in essence, what he has been trying to communicate over time. And today's stuff gets a little deep. And so I'm very excited about doing it with you. I think we'll have a number of questions this time. So the first section is going to be signs of the end some eschatological end times stuff. The second section, we only have three this week, is the destruction of Jerusalem predicted. Jesus talks about what will end up happening to Jerusalem at some point in time. 
Then the last section, really short, is watching for what Jesus calls the Son of Man. That's my favorite ringtone in church. I think that's always so appropriate. <clears throat> so signs of the end. The whole first section of chapter 21 is what we in the business called eschatology. Eschatology or the, is about the eschaton, which is the end of days, right? So we might, you might call it Armageddon. That's a little dramatic. It is less, Armageddon implies kind of destructive stuff, whereas eschaton is really almost the fulfillment of the end. And that kind of eschatology is not just judgment or destruction, but it's both and. It's a it's an end of what has been and the beginning of what will be so that there is this implication of healing or wholeness that we will ultimately reach. And so the beginning of this chapter, Jesus focuses on that idea by talking about the most important place for all of the Jews that are there in Jerusalem with him, and that is the temple. So a quick reminder, the temple... This is the second of the temples that have existed. If we think back to the Old Testament, David inherits the throne and unifies all of Israel, and his son Solomon builds the first capital T temple. That temple exists for a few generations until the Babylonians come down and sack Jerusalem and take away all of the skilled, kind of the elite of the community. Something that a lot of people don't know is that is called the exile, right? The capital E exile. The exile was not every Jew. The Babylonians had no interest in having all of these captive Jews. What they did is they sort of decapitated the culture. So they took the teachers, the priests, the artisans, the people who maintained the way of life, much smaller portion of the population. But when they took all those people away, those that were sort of more the worker bees in the community did not have a clear direction or way of being. And so culture, as we might perceive it, began to deteriorate. When the Persians overtook the Babylonians, Cyrus the Great sent all of the Jews, the elite Jews that had been held in Babylon, back to Israel to rebuild their city because the Persians didn't want them either. So the Babylonians took a few Jews, enough to make a big impact, and the Persians, when they overtook the Babylonians, said, you don't need to be here. Go on back home. Israel, although it, it seems like it is a significant culture to us, because of the rootedness that we have in Christianity with Judaism, in the grand scheme of you know, Asia Minor, Middle East, uh, Mediterranean world, Israel was never a major player. Regionally, it was on and off. But when you add in groups like the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, Israel just never registered. So they were kind of bumped around a bit they maintained a level of importance because of trade routes. Couldn't get from Asia to Africa, 
or from Europe to Africa without going straight down the coast, which is today Israel. That was the easiest way to get there. And so be, when you're kind of the middleman, so to speak, you maintain some level of importance. But we hear stories over and over again about Jerusalem being almost used when it was convenient and discarded when it wasn't. So we hearken back to that idea when Jesus talks about the temple. All the Jews would have known the story of the destruction of the first temple. They would also have known that when the Persians sent the Israelites back, that is when they rebuilt the temple. That is the temple that Jesus is in right now, the second temple. And there have only ever been two. Today, modern Jews would love for there to be a third, except the place where the temple is to go that we call the Temple Mount is today controlled by Muslims in Jerusalem and the shrine, the Dome of the Rock, is now where the temple should be. And so the Jerusalem is tenuous, we'll talk about that, in the way that the Jews can't rebuild what should be the temple. And we might say, well, just build it somewhere else. That's not how it works. There is a place where the temple is supposed to be, and until it can be rebuilt there, it's not being rebuilt at all. I think that's all I'm going to say, unless there's a follow-up question to clarify anything. So Jesus is sitting in the temple, the second one, and points to it and says, The days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And the Jews listening to Jesus cannot make sense of this at all. Because yes, the first temple was destroyed, but this is the real temple. And Herod in particular, Herod the Great, the one that died right when Jesus was born-ish, we're not quite sure, but Herod the Great had expanded the temple in a significant way. The first temple of Solomon was a decently small place. It was really just what we might call the sanctuary space. Herod made it this wonderful palace, almost, with lots of courtyards, concentric rings of courtyards that were, became more and more um, elite as you move toward the center space. And so Jesus would have been in what they called Solomon's portico, which is, in essence, the out, outer ring where most anyone could go. You didn't have to be a special person to get into that space. And so he's teaching freely in this space about how this temple might be destroyed. I want you to imagine the way the people may have responded to this idea of destroying the temple. It would almost be like if someone said, imagine, picture Washington, D.C. in your mind, and imagine the White House and the Washington Monument and the U.S. Capitol and everything being just completely destroyed. It's sort of a, almost an unimaginable kind of idea because they represent for us what holds everything together, at least we think. It would be like that, but even bigger. Because for them, the temple was not just the political hub, but it was the religious hub. It was quite literally where God touched the earth. And that is an odd idea for us, because as we will see most clearly in this chapter than anything else in Luke, Jesus remakes this idea that God is not in a single place, but that God is in us, 
and everywhere. For the people at the time, the temple was not just a pretty church. It was not just where their grandparents may have gone to worship. It was so much bigger than that. Destroying the temple could quite literally equate to God is gone. And so it is an incredibly, it's almost an impossible idea that this temple would be destroyed. And so they immediately come back to Jesus and they say, how is this even possible? And if this were to happen, how would we know that it was going to happen? Now they ask this question, and it could be that Jesus had this very conversation with his followers. It could also be that Luke is a very good editor. Remember when Luke was written. Luke is written after 70. And in the year 70, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. So although I, I fully believe that Jesus had this message, I also think that Luke has crafted this language to be crystal clear to the people who would be reading this gospel. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. Not in some metaphorical sense, but in a literal sense. Jesus knew this temple would be destroyed. We often hear a metaphorical interpretation of the temple's destruction linked to Jesus' body and that he would rebuild the temple. That's not exactly what's happening in this passage. In this passage, Jesus is talking about a physical shift in the world, an, a, an imbalance from what everyone had known. And this is a very disturbing idea. Hold that in your mind, and let's also talk about the way in which people heard about stuff happening in the world. In other words, how did you hear news of the day? In the ancient world, the only way you really heard about stuff happening is a person told you. Now, if you are a king, emperor, governor, someone high up, you may have a relatively official way of communicating across a large distance. But anyone below that level was hearing news from the random people who happened to be traveling through their town. So someone stops in Israel coming from Persia on the way to Egypt, and they say, you know what happened in Persia last month? And they tell them a story. News. We have shifted the way that we think we know news. And very, very honestly, the way we think we know truth. Most of us have live into the idea that because we can communicate clearly and nearly instantly anywhere in the world, we have a very clear, clear idea of what is true and what is truly happening in other places we have, in essence, kind of been duped into thinking that when we see a video or a picture or hear a story from someone, that they in some way know truth. Which is one of the reasons why people argue all the time about what's really happening in other places, because they saw that video. It's happening. When that might be 30 seconds of one person's perspective on one street in one city in the middle of who knows where, and that's truth? No. 
but we believe that we are hearing something more true than perhaps what Jesus is implying in this story. So he is hinting at when these bad things start to happen, you're going to hear stories of things going on in other places of the world that will be unsettling, that will worry you, and that could, if you're not careful and vigilant, change the way that you follow me. And Jesus is saying to his followers, what we're doing right now feels good, right? We just kind of had this big parade into the city, and I'm being snarky to all of the religious leaders, and, you know, I'm on your side. That's not going to happen much longer. And when I'm gone physically, you're sort of on your own, except not entirely. When you are on your own, when physically it seems like you may be by yourself, you are not. And Jesus points to giving them the Spirit. There will be an advocate. There will be my presence with you when things get rough. And he begins to explain how rough things might be. Any questions right now before we get to his description of what might happen? So Jesus says in verse 9, When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and plagues and so on. But before this occurs, they will arrest you, and they will persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. And that might sound bad, but he says this will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds now, not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withhold, withstand or contradict. And he goes on, you will be betrayed by even parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish, because by your endurance you will gain your souls. Thanks a lot, Jesus. <laughs> this is not entirely optimistic. We might imagine that Jesus is actually saying this to his followers in real time. I usually read this as Luke has taken a lot of words and summarized what Jesus said. So again, we, we've talked about this idea before that Jesus said a lot of stuff. Luke is not simply recording the only things Jesus ever said, right? Jesus talked for at least a year, if not three years, and the gospel is nowhere near long enough to have recorded everything he said. So Luke is telling a story about Jesus. And he has taken this big idea and created it in some very clear language. So Jesus said all these things, perhaps not in this way, but that doesn't really matter. This is what he left with his disciples. Luke knows that the wheels are going to come off because he's already seen it. When Jesus is talking in the temple to his disciples in this moment of history, Things seem relatively stable. 
But if we think about what has happened in Jerusalem, not only has Jerusalem been sacked and the temple been destroyed when Luke is finally writing this gospel, but a bigger picture is the Roman Empire that had been so very solid and dependable was also beginning to disintegrate. If we think back to around 60, Nero has been emperor for a number of years, and he is a lunatic. And he begins to do things that undermine the security and stability of the entire Roman Empire. If we remember back to Augustus Caesar, the Pax Romana, this idea that Rome brought peace to the world is being undone. Nero's, uh, what would be the right word? Um, he is a crazy person, but his, what am I trying to say? What is it when you're, oh, paranoia. Couldn't think of the word. Nero's paranoia has created a lot of um, instability within the leadership that has floated down. And by the time Jerusalem is destroyed, that instability has affected the entire empire. And so not only is Jerusalem vulnerable, but the empire is vulnerable as well. That means that these people living in Israel would begin to hear about all of the craziness that's going on in other parts of the empire as travelers come in and out of the region. Jesus is saying, when you hear this stuff, don't be afraid. When people persecute you, don't be afraid. He is turning the understanding of what it means to be, in essence, saved. For the Jews, you were saved by the law. When you followed the law to the letter, that is how you were saved. Jesus is saying the law is a good thing, but the law does not save you. You are saved through your faith, through your connection to God through me. And when bad stuff happens, don't worry about it. This is the physical world. This is only the world you see now. There is something so much bigger. And even if this world is hard, you will be rewarded in the end when God comes to heal and make the whole world whole. Remember that eschaton idea? That healing will come. But in order to get to the healing, you kind of have to go through the mud. Yes? Someone got a text. Before we get to the destruction of Jerusalem in the second passage, any questions or clarity for this first section? All right, so the question could be is, <laughs> is faith in Christ the, well, you said get out of jail free card, which is a good image. Um, let me see if I can, I won't try to clarify the question. Let me try and speak to it. I've said in here before that fear has been a very effective motivator throughout church history, more or less, even through the Renaissance, fear of what could happen after death is what got butts in the pews. Now, that ebbed and flowed for sure. In fact, I, I can remember, um, we all obviously know that in our culture, we're seeing a decline in church attendance and connection and all that sort of stuff. But when I was over um, in London uh, about a year and a half ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury was speaking to us in this little room with all the, these pictures of former Archbishops of Canterbury. 
And of course, I'm not an Anglophile, so I don't know who any of these people are. But he pointed to one and he said his name, whatever his name is, and he said 1615 or something like that. He said he was Archbishop in 1615, which I kind of made up, but it's around there. He said, do you know what the Easter attendance was that year at St. Paul's in London? No, Archbishop, what was it? Eight. Eight people went to St. Paul's that year on Easter Sunday. So he said, we have been here before. It is not unusual that church attendance and connection goes up and down, right? We have this consistency through either the highs or the lows. That's really what Jesus is going to point to, not the get-out-of-jail-free card. But there is the sense, I think that Jesus would agree, that it is fidelity, maybe not faith, but fidelity through the good and the bad that is what saves you. That we're actually called not for only the highs, but through it all. And you'll get it all. There will be high highs, and there will be sucky lows, and we are meant to have fidelity through it all. In the next passage, with the destruction of Jerusalem, he really gets into this very clearly. So hang on to that idea, because I actually made notes about the difference between evangelism and proselytizing, because that, I think, is a nuance that we, especially as Episcopalians, need to wrestle with, because it's easy for us to simply throw it all out. But I think some of that is good, so long as we don't cross a line into what kind of amounts to fear-mongering. There's a, there's a medium in there for us that we tend to reject it all, and we shouldn't. Because there is still truth in the... There's truth in being a disciple of Christ that brings you to the, the wholeness that God wants for us. But it's not because of fear of the other. It's about hopefulness and opportunity and aspiration. And I think that's the balance we have to strike is invitation, but not judgment. And that's hard because usually, usually people find it easier to just not do any of that. I told you all, you know, the old joke, what's Episcopal evangelism? You paint the door red and wait for the right people to show up. <laughs> so, you know, we can be much better than that. But we have, to, we have to make the judgment as we go to what that better can be. So let's, let's get into this middle section, and then we'll see if we can tie that up a little bit better um, in just a few minutes. So a reminder, Luke is writing after the temple is destroyed. We are going to parse out verses here in a way that I don't usually do. So look at verse 20. In verse 20, Luke is writing very clearly about war and pain. All right, this clear writing is not hard to understand. This whole passage, the, the passage I'm looking at, is going to go all the way through the stuff about the fig tree. So it's a decent amount of the chapter. Luke writes, though, in this first section about war. We know about war. He's very clear. 
Jesus, I'm sorry, is very clear that when war comes, don't go down with the Jerusalem ship. That's really what he's saying. In essence, when you see that your city, culture, whatever, is being surrounded, run. Don't stick around. That might make a lot of sense. Shoot, yeah, we're going to run. But what he's really saying is, has a much deeper theology. The temple, right? This is connected to what he started in the beginning of the chapter. He's in the temple. The temple will be destroyed, he says. The temple is everything in Judaism. Every bit of the identity of what it means to be Jewish is that temple. And it would make great sense that you would give everything to save the temple. Because without it, who are you? And what Jesus is saying here is you are no longer yoked to this physical place. Instead, your faith goes with you. So if someone's going to come and sack Jerusalem, get out. Because God's still with you wherever you are. Some of you, maybe many of you, know that I've got a background in comparative religion, specifically in religious conflict. And so I often teach or speak about Mideast conflict. And one of the questions I get all the time is why it seems like Jews and Muslims tend to be fighting over space in the Middle East, but Christians sort of don't. This is one of those points in Scripture where Christians have rested on the idea that place, stuff, does not define God's presence. That is not a Jewish idea. For Jews, place matters. Later on, for Muslims, place matters. A sacred place is uncoupled with people. Whereas for Christians, although we can certainly slip into this understanding, the church is not this. The church is us. So we can all walk outside and sit in the grass, and that's church, whether we're in this building or not. Now, we like our buildings, and they're pretty, and they're traditional, and it makes us feel comfortable, but at the highest level, we know that that is not what church really is. Church is when we get together. So when push comes to shove and you want to have a war over a building or a rock or a hill or you can have it because honestly it's not worth dying quite literally in that ditch because that ditch is not where God is. God's here. This section where Jesus says get out of Dodge is really pointing at a much bigger theological shift for everyone hearing his words. Does that make sense? Okay. If we flip on to the next passage, verses 25 and 26, this is where the colorful language starts to overwhelm our rationality. So we've got... We've got war and we've got destruction. We, we can conceive of all of that. 
Then Jesus says, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. This is great. People will faint from fear. Oh, get the vapors. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So we've gone from easily understood literal language you know, armies, war, destruction, to language that seems almost completely metaphorical, except the people of the ancient world believed that they could read the sky to understand both what has or is happening and what will happen, and they take that very seriously. Astrology and the like was not some weird um, kind of peripheral study. It was a science, a science, as scientific as it got in the ancient world. Think of the wise men who followed the star to Bethlehem. They read the sky. People read the sky to figure out what will happen. And so Jesus says, all these signs will start to be seen. People will faint from fear. I love that. And everything you think should be solid and dependable will be shaken, even the heavens. He is not talking about heaven. He is talking about the heavens, like the sky. So that is... mm, We haven't done this in here, but let's talk real fast about the way people thought the world was made up. Sorry, people listening at home are not going to get to see this picture, but I'll try to explain it. So if you imagine a circle, a sphere, so to speak, that was the whole world. In the middle of the world, you had sort of earth. And you had, you know, mountains and oceans with fish and that sort of stuff, right? So this is the world we live in. Notice it's flat. So we are on a plane. And above the plane, there is the sky with clouds and all that kind of pretty stuff and the sun. Yay, sun. And then above the sphere was the heavens. And the heavens could be water, could be air, could be anything. Underneath the earth, in the bottom part of this, is the fire. Quite literally, hell. Either the top or bottom could break through at any time. So if we think back to some of the kind of big mythic stories at the beginning of Scripture, what is one example of a breakthrough? The flood. The way the flood story is told, it is this physical understanding of the world where there is, there is quite literally a shell that is holding back the heavens. And if that shell opened up, you know, when we say the skies opened up and the rain started, that's an old, old idea. We don't, that's not just made up metaphor. That's this, where 
they believe there was almost like a roof holding that stuff in, and it could open up. And if it really opened up, you get a flood. And that's where the story of Noah gets its idea of the floodwaters coming down onto the earth. In essence, Jesus is speaking in this metaphorical understanding, right? We don't know at this point in time anything about, you know, heliocentric um, understanding of the solar system or of the world or what stars are or, you know, combustion or fission or fusion, whatever. They only know what they can see with their eyes, and they see stuff moving around in the sky. I can remember, it was probably about 10 years ago, I was out walking my dog, and it was, it was Halloween night, actually. We had gone out trick-or-treating and all that fun stuff, and it was late, um, nearly midnight. I was outside walking, and for whatever reason, it was a full moon, and there were long threads of clouds moving across the sky really, really fast. It's a beautiful sight when you know what that is. If you didn't know what that was, that's a scary thing to see. I mean, no wonder you get this idea of witches flying through the air. I mean, it, it really could look like spirits moving straight across the sky. And especially on those eerie nights when you've got a full moon so it's not super dark, and you can almost see everything happening in the sky, I get it. This makes sense to me when I have those moments and I think, okay, I understand what they meant. Jesus is using this kind of understanding of the world to make the point that when you hear about all the bad stuff, remember what I have taught you. Because it is natural for you, having understood the world in a particular way, to when I am gone, default. Back to that understanding, don't. Because I have given you a new vision of what the world really is, how God really works. And so don't go back to the stuff you were taught as a child. Instead, when you hear about all these bad things, remain faithful to me. I also want to link back to a prophetic tradition of Daniel. So in this, at the very end of this, of this section, if you look at verses 27, after all of that colorful, poetic language, Jesus says, Then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So when you see war, run. When you hear that the whole world seems to be falling apart, and you are being mistreated and abused even by your own parents. Stay faithful to me, because in the end, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. I want to make sure we know this is not the second coming of Jesus. This is a different idea, and this links back to a judgment, a final judgment. Again, the idea of the eschaton. Judgment when the world will be made whole that the Jews would understand because of the vision of Daniel. So Daniel is a prophet in the Jewish tradition, and he lived in the exile. So what we talked about at the beginning, when the Babylonians took the Jews into exile— 
there was a group that in essence lived as captives. They were slaves. They were not, well, they were prisoners, yes, but they didn't live in prison. They were just simply captives to the Babylonians and they did their work. Think of like the, the Hebrew people in Egypt, right? They couldn't leave, but they were working all the time. Daniel, along with some others, refused to bow down to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Or Rakshak and Benny. Any of you ever watch VeggieTales? Yeah. Um, they refused to pray to the idol, and so they were thrown into the furnace where the angel of the Lord came and saved them and changed Nebuchadnezzar's mind about their God, their God. Daniel is living in this same time period, and he has visions. Of course, we know Daniel in the lion's den, right? Same idea. He wasn't thrown into the fire, but he was thrown into the lion's den, but the angel of the Lord came and saved him, and again, Nebuchadnezzar was shocked. But Daniel has a vision in chapter 7 that you might be familiar with. I'll read from Daniel chapter 7. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I watched. Its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among the teeth, and was told, Arise, and devour the many bodies. After this I watched as another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking into pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that preceded it, because it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one, coming up among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. This is gross. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. So Daniel has had this vision of four massive beasts coming out of the ocean. They would scare anybody. But then he says, as I watched, thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And it goes on and on and on, and then it says... Then I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. As the story goes on, the ancient one and the one that look like a human being coming from the clouds vanquish all the evil beasts, and they remake the world 
They create wholeness out of this terror. When Luke writes that you will see the Son of Man coming from the clouds, every Jew there would think to that story. That's a good story. It's, it's crazy, but its images are ones you kind of can't get out of your mind, right? Which is why we, we still know this story because the images are so visceral. Jesus is pointing to the moment when everything we think is wrong will be made right. When God will come as a judge with Jesus to make the world whole again. Any question? Yeah, so if we were to talk about what we might consider biblical end times, right, we mostly think of Revelation, except our story, so to speak, that we have heard in popular culture is really an amalgamation of multiple visions. Mostly it's Daniel and Revelation. They're the two that give us the clear end times evil stuff. We, it's easy for us to think, and there's nothing wrong with this, that, oh, how do I want to say this? When we read the Gospels, it is very easy for us to imagine someone like Luke sitting next to Jesus and writing down what he said. That is not what happened. Instead, people heard these stories, told others, who told others, who told others, and someone like Luke wrote down the story. It is a faithful telling of the story, but it is still through the interpretive understanding of someone like Luke. So when he hears a story about something Jesus said, Luke may have written exactly what he heard, but the people who retell that story tell the story through the lens that they have. They would know stories like Daniel, and if they heard Jesus say something that sounds like that, then when they retell the story, the Daniel stuff they have in their mind is going to be sprinkled in. And by the time it gets to the gospel writers, what Jesus may have said has been interpreted in a way that connects it very clearly to the prophetic tradition that the Jews inherited. I want you to hear me say it's not that it's inaccurate or wrong. It is a fuller telling of the story. It is not the literal words that Jesus said. Some people don't like that idea, but it doesn't matter what you like. That is what happened. And so if someone tells you that their opinion is different, you can tell them it's not an opinion. That's what happened. This is not a, what, what, did, what did crazy girl say? Um, what, what's the different, the facts? No, what'd she say? Alternative facts? No. This is not, this is not alternative facts. These, this is just what happened. It's the way that it works. And this is what we have inherited. And knowing that helps us, in my opinion, now this is an opinion, get deeper into our relationship with God. Because it isn't just literal, here are the words. It is so much better than that. 
a story, it's almost like the difference between a documentary and a movie based on a real story, right? A documentary is great, but if you watch a movie that is a story told based on real events, man, it's almost always so much more compelling because a thoughtful person has looked at all of this stuff and said, here's the message I really think is most important. And that is why we have four Gospels, because each one of those evangelists did that. If we only took one, we would put too much weight on one person's good storytelling. Instead, over time, we picked four of those really good stories and said, when you learn them all together and you look at Jesus from all four stories, you get a really whole idea of what it was that he was trying to do. Oh, geez, Anne, take that back. So, to get back to the idea of fear-mongering, I'll, I'll leave that there. Um, many Christians have interpreted this message as a very clear command, if not compelling, to go and make sure everyone they know does not die in the peril of the end times. I want to believe, I'm the eternal optimist, that the idea, when people say to you, do you know where you're going when you die, starts from a very good place. Because there is a conviction that if you do not profess faith in Christ as prescripted, you will burn. I don't want you to. And so I really, really want you to follow this script and to do these things to be saved. It's a, it's a good starting place. The problem is there's very little grace in that, and it also makes out Jesus to be like a magician, and that's what I don't really like. Like, there's a magic spell that if you just follow the magic spell and do the stuff, then there's a bunny. That's, it's just not that simple. It doesn't mean that it's not trying to do a good thing, but faithfulness and discipleship and transformation in the spirit is so much more complex than that. So we, I believe, as Anglicans, have that, that middle place where we don't want to throw out the idea that salvation is real, but we want to hold that intention with the seemingly boundless grace that Jesus offers every person he comes in contact with and make it an invitation rather than something that is disciplinary or harsh. And that's the balance. We still should go out and invite people in. We are not left off the hook for that. But we also do it in a slightly different way because there's an opportunity in following Christ. It's not fear of eternal damnation. All right. Any questions or thought on that before we do the last little bit? The last little bit is actually quite simple. Theologically, it is simple. Jesus says, stuff's going to get hard, and you're going to get bored, 
and you're going to think that it's not worth it. But stay faithful. Quite literally, keep awake. The idea of keeping awake is something we hear over and over again. Be prepared, keep awake. We'll see this in the garden where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, could you not just stay awake with me? He's not saying, like, you know, you need an espresso shot. It's not, it's not about physical exhaustion as much as it is spiritual exhaustion. Luke knows that these 40 or so years after Jesus' resurrection, 40, 50 years, has not been easy for Christ followers. And so he emphasizes very clearly this idea that is likely very much what Jesus would have said, but he makes it crystal clear to those who have been exhausted by the life of discipleship that they have chosen to say it's worth it and to stick with it. N.T. Wright in his commentary makes a really good point in this passage where he says, if we, think about what, if, we, if we think about what we know in the expansion of the church, Peter started things with a lot of energy. The stuff that happened in Jerusalem was really kind of great and attractive and energetic, but then there was a shift away from Jerusalem. People who were in Jerusalem or Israel who were following Jesus would have seen all the exciting stuff move away. They were doing good things, and then all of a sudden Christianity was for everybody. And dang, what about us? And they would have been hearing stories of places like Corinth and Ephesus and Rome, where the Christian communities were thriving. But back in Jerusalem or Israel, there may have been a lull. Don't worry about the lull, right? It's like we talked about at the beginning. There are highs and there are lows. The call Jesus makes to us is for fidelity through all of it. We love the highs, right? We love that stuff. In fact, we have become addicted to the high. How many people do you know who will tell you, and you may be one of these people, I, I probably am sometimes, will tell you about that great video they saw online. I even said it at Easter, where I was watching these videos of people who are colorblind who started wearing glasses to see color, and they burst into tears, and their family's crying, and they're hugging, and they can see. And I'll watch one after another after another because it feels so good. I have multiple people have emailed me since that sermon and said, we went home, and we spent 30 minutes watching these videos of people who are colorblind seeing color for the first time because it just is wonderful. There's nothing bad about this. We've almost become addicted to being able to have that feeling anytime we want, on demand. So when we have experiences that are not super high, we almost feel like they're not worth it. That's the danger of doing things like what I do. There's, a, there's always the pressure to perform, right? Like, I'm going to put on a show on Sunday because if it's slightly boring on Sunday, people might say, meh. You know, I've seen better. You know, and that's, <clears throat> that's the nature of the culture, is that you want a show. And it's no longer a good show. It's got to be a great show. Because we can go get a great show from our pocket anytime we want. 
Luke is really addressing that kind of desire, not only desire, but expectation. That if you don't get the good show or the highest high, you could just walk away. And he says, don't do that. Because the life of faith is so much better than the high highs. Consistency is really the key. Sticking with it is really the key. And so I want to read to you the passage from this commentary real fast. N.T. Wright starts to say, imagine that you go to any city in the world today in the 21st century. You emerge from a church on Sunday morning. It could be a Pentecostal celebration, an Anglican mass, or a Spanish celebration, and there is the world going on about its business, or as it may be, the world as its pleasure. Your friends think you're odd for still going to church. Everybody knows Christianity is outdated, right? Disproved, boring, irrelevant. What you need is really more sex, more parties, more money-making, more revolution. Anyway, hasn't the church done some pretty bad things in its time? Like, what about the Inquisition? Because they always say that. What about the Crusades? Who needs Christianity now that we have computers and space travel? Anyway, they say, if Jesus is so special, why is the world still such a mess? They don't want to know about the freeing of the slaves, the rise of education, the building of hospitals. They certainly don't want to know about the lives that are changed every day by the gospel. They want to load you with the cares of this life. And as Jesus warned, with dissipation and drunkenness, quite literally and metaphorically, they want to wear you down, to make you think you're odd, even stupid. Why study an old book, they say, that's never done anyone any good? Well, the answer is the same for us as it was for Jerusalem back nearly a generation after Jesus. The answer is keep alert. This is what you were told to expect. Patience is the key. Pray for strength to keep on your feet. There are times when your eyes will be shutting with tiredness, spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical, and when you will have to prop them open. That's what this is all about. Not an exciting battle with adrenaline flowing and banners flying, but the steady tread of prayer and hope and scripture and sacrament and witness day by day and week by week. This is what counts. This is why patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We read the story again. We remind one another of what Jesus said, and we keep awake. That's page 259 and 260 in the commentary. Sorry we ran out of time for questions, but I look forward to seeing you all next week where we get into some of the passion stuff. Have a great week. <laughs>